the Blue Marine Foundation podcast, sharing our passion for the wonders of the ocean. Hello, I'm Charles Clover. I'm from the Blue Marine Foundation, and this is one of three podcasts celebrating our Ocean Award winners this year and our Lifetime Achievement Award, the most distinguished award that we give. Uh, the winner of that this year is Lisa Spear, one of those people, not often in the limelight, but who has lived and still lives on the very front line of global marine conservation. She uh, has championed an astonishing list of marine conservation initiatives in the US, the Arctic, and through the UN globally. These range from a crackdown on oil pollution after the Exxon Valdez oil spill in 1990, right up to her most recent achievement as part of the UN negotiating team, which finally agreed a treaty to protect biodiversity on the high seas in areas beyond national jurisdiction. This treaty took two decades to happen and was signed two days after our distinguished judges decided to give Lisa this Lifetime Achievement Award. Thank goodness. I'm glad we got that one right. There were nervous moments. Congratulations, Lisa. Thank you. I'm so honored uh, to be uh, the winner this year of the Lifetime Achievement Award by this incredibly um, prestigious organization. It, it just, Blue Marine is one of those organizations that just stands out in the ocean conservation world. And so I'm just really honored and, and grateful for this award. You are kind. We do this, we've always done this with, with uh, Boat International as a partnership. Uh, they bring things to it, we bring things to it. And, and I think that the, the partnership has been great. Um, you've had quite a career. Um, how did you what is it with you and the ocean how did you get into this well i actually have a degree in forestry if you can believe it <laughs> but a spot opened up at nrdc in 1983. do explain for our uk readers what nrdc is it's a very big uh, american ngo but you you would explain it better than i do so yeah the natural resources defense council or nrdc is a US-based organization that deploys about 700 scientists, lawyers, and policy experts to tackle the world, some of the world's greatest crises, including climate change, including drinking water issues, air pollution, water pollution, and of course, ocean conservation. And um, I joined NRDC in 1983. The position that was open was one related to the oceans, and it didn't matter to me. I jumped right at it because uh, all my life I have been anxious to do whatever I can to advance the protection and conservation of this beautiful earth we have. So I lucked out, got the job, and have been working on the ocean ever since. Wow. And uh, you had some pretty uh, big achievements right after you started then, I believe. I'm thinking of uh, the, the, the the continental shelf drilling around the United States, but I, I don't understand that. Um, but I know that it is it is a fact. Tell me, tell me what happened. So uh, you may remember Ronald Reagan. 
And Ronald Reagan was a very conservative Republican uh, president of the United States. And he was determined to open up our entire outer continental shelf. And that's the area that extends from the shore out 200, mi 200 miles from the coast. He wanted to open, throw open the entire outer continental shelf to oil drilling. And my reaction was over my dead body. And so uh, I was working with a, a whole range of partners around the country over a number of years to generate opposition to this plan to allow oil development off every inch of the U.S. coast. And in that process, partnered with unusual characters, so people that would not necessarily be considered uh, conservation-oriented, people like real estate associations, hotel owners, restaurateurs, uh, and better business bureaus around the country to express their concern about having offshore oil and gas development right off their coasts. And over time, we were able to build political support around the country to pass a congressional uh, moratorium on oil and gas development off the entire East Coast, the entire West Coast of the United States, and parts of Alaska. So that was a huge step forward and one I'm, I'm particularly um, proud of, of course, it's all done as, as part of a team. And I had a great group of people working, I was working with and really, but that was a big one. The thing about that one is it, it needs to be explained to people who aren't from the US quite how significant that is. That's two whole coasts, not three. I mean, presumably the, the, the drilling continues to happen in the, uh, 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 in the Gulf of Mexico. Yes, two whole, the entire East Coast, the entire West Coast um, of the United States. And um, drilling does proceed in the Gulf of Mexico. And we are quite concerned about that uh, in that there are a whole range of, of effects, as you know, not just oil spills, but uh, noise pollution, air pollution, water pollution from routine operations. So that's that's a big one. Now, um, I must move on because there's so much to talk about. And one of the things that I came to hear about you uh, about was that in the 90s, I think, after the UN fish stocks agreement, which I think you had something to do with, you, you, you found a way of selling fish as wildlife. Now, people had sold whales as, as, as uh, the emblems of the sea that we needed to protect in the 60s, but we'd never done it for fish. And you did a campaign called Give Swordfish a Break. And that was somewhat innovative to my mind. Even I heard about it. How did you get into that? Well, you know, it's one of the things that we've always found in ocean um, advocacy is that people look out at the ocean and they think the problems are so vast, I can't really do anything to help fix it. And so we, we thought, let's try to highlight a success story. Let's show people that if you do give fish populations a breather, give them a chance to recover uh, from overfishing, that they can come back. And so we chose Atlantic swordfish because it's a, it's a popular fish that people eat, they're familiar with it. 
And it had been depleted by overfishing throughout the Atlantic for quite a long time. So we partnered up with some of the nation's most prominent chefs uh, to uh, for our campaign called Give Swordfish a Break, as you noted. And this campaign basically involved calling on people to not eat swordfish until populations had come back to what scientists were telling us were healthy levels and to put off limits these nursery areas where baby swordfish have a chance to reach adulthood. And so we uh, did this campaign and it was really fun. And I tell you, I gained about 20 pounds during it because I kept eating at the places that, <laughs> that eating, the, eating the food of the champion chefs who you were, exactly. you were signing up and yeah, they supported exactly. it. Yeah. They supported it and they were very vocal about it as well. It was, it was quite, um, uh, Mrs. Lydia Bastianich and Eric, um, anyway, there were a lot of very high profile chefs who got behind this. And so, and you know, we were able to get restrictions on the catch and the protection of the nursery area. And voila, the swordfish came roaring back. Well, you, you inspired a lot of people I was involved with in the campaign to save the, the, the bluefin tuna on the, uh, the eastern side of the Atlantic, which, again, nobody believed could be done. And, and uh, we pulled it off in the end. Um, but that was part of uh, the, the book and the film of the end of the line. But, you know, the, these examples of, of, um, of success are still quite few. I mean, look at the cod off the, uh, the northeast coast of America. Look at the cod in the four populations of cod around the UK coast. Why can't we do it every time? Well, there, there are a bunch of different reasons. Um, and I think that the big one is the lack of political will, which is why you chose bluefin tuna and we chose swordfish because they are fish that people know about and understand and encounter every day uh, in the grocery store or at restaurants. And so I think part of the, our challenge is to build the political will uh, to take some steps that are short-term painful, but long-term very important for ocean health and for the livelihoods of everyone, including fishermen who depend on a healthy ocean. They're not even that painful. They're just uh, resisted. That's what they are. They're often not as painful as they say they're going to be. Anyway, uh, you've done so many things that I've got to move on again because there's this massive thing of the protection of the uh, the, the, of creating marine reserves beyond uh, a national jurisdiction, which I think you must have started ramping up for about 20 years ago, and it's only just happened. And the, the allied um, fact that, that, that we've now also got a treaty to protect 30% of, of land and sea uh, by 2030, um, because you can't actually get to that total without protecting reserves on the the, 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 the high seas. The, the, the astonishing thing about both of those achievements, which came um, in, in within three months and uh, which you had a lot to do with, you must tell me exactly what, is that they happened in this rather depressing international 
uh, atmosphere in this in this climate of of opposition with the war going on in Ukraine. Um, how do you think that all came about? Well, that's a great question, um, and indeed, I think you know one of the most significant. Uh, elements of the new treaty and the agreement to protect 30 by 30 um, is a signal that multilateralism is still alive and it can still address problems of a global nature. And that, for me, is one of the most uh, encouraging elements of these accomplishments, quite apart from the the substance, um, sending the world a signal that we can work together to solve global problems is, is really important in these times of real skepticism and, and uh, kind of a demoralizing international situation. So, but the, the, um, the, the 30 by 30, I think, was uh, a, a huge step forward um, for both the land and the ocean uh, and it kind of provided a springboard for us to finally get the High Seas Treaty over the line. There is, I mean, what critics say, you know, no international treaty is ever perfect because it's an international treaty and everybody has to agree. But you know, the critics do say that the 30 by 30 is, is, is a hollow treaty because it doesn't say how you're supposed to do it. It doesn't have a quality aspect to that 30%. What, in your view, should that 30% be? So scientists tell us that the most effective way to give the ocean a fighting chance in the face of climate change and all the other threats that it faces is to fully or highly protect large areas of the ocean. And so you put your finger on the most, one of the most important issues, which is it's not just the quantity of the protection, the 30%, it's the quality of that protection. So some may, you know, some countries call an area protected, even if it allows things like oil development or bottom trawling or other destructive practices. And so one of the things that we did in collaboration with the, the uh, government of Belgium is to create a coalition of high-level political leaders called the Blue Leaders. And these were environment ministers and foreign ministers, and in some cases, heads of state, who were committed to highly and fully protecting 30% of the ocean in order to ensure that the protection is meaningful and that, in fact, will give us the kinds of benefits that scientists tell us can accrue from strongly protected areas. Somebody has yet to convince the French, but um, I gather... Uh, but um, <laughs> maybe the Belgians could have a go. But but what is this but globally? What is what is this treaty going to mean? We can protect now that we've never protected before, just so that people know. So up until now, there has been no legal means for establishing fully protected high seas marine protected areas. So individual sectors like the fishing sector, there have been they've been able to put some areas off limits but only to fishing. There's never been a mechanism to make sure that that area put off limits to fishing isn't destroyed by, for example, seabed mining or another destructive activity. And what this agreement does is enables the creation of these kinds of fully protected marine protected areas that scientists tell us are essential for a healthy ocean. 
And you were on the UN delegation, I believe, when this went through. How did you feel when it did happen? Oh, I, I you know, I just, I was, could not stop crying. I have to tell you, I was so, this has been two decades of my life. And I have to say that moment when the president of the negotiations walked back in and said, we have an agreement, she burst into tears. I burst, everybody, <laughs> we all stood up and, and clapped. It was a very emotional moment. And, uh, and one that I think it's just been very hard fought by an awful lot of people and people put their lives into this for a long time. So really glad to get it over the finish line. But I have to say, the work is far from over. We now, uh, we're not going to wait for this thing to come into force. We're going to start right away. We, we did start right away the day after starting to plan for laying the groundwork for these high seas and um, marine protected areas that people are important for, for improving how we manage and conserve marine biodiversity, for getting going on making this treaty have me mean real change on the water and that we're raring to go and very excited about the prospects of moving forward. Last question, what can ordinary people do to get all these countries to ratify it so this treaty can work come 2025? What can, what can ordinary people do? So the most important thing is to make your voice heard. Uh, I think people underestimate the impact that a phone call, a, a letter, a, an email to elected officials can have. And the, I think it's very important for people to say, okay, this, a healthy ocean is important to me and this treaty is gonna help that. And I would like to see my country ratify this as soon as possible. And these are concrete things. These are things like the Sargasso Sea, the Lost City, uh, the, the various Walvis Ridge, and these, these sorts of features that are only dimly a part of our consciousness, but they are real. Uh, and people will, are increasingly realizing that we should protect. So thank you very much for that. Um, and and one last question, of course, um, which I always do. You know, do you do you consume what comes out of the sea yourself uh, anymore? I do on occasion, but as uh, sea life has continued to become depleted, I'm much more conscious of my choices and our. Um, what do you eat? What do I eat? I eat. <laughs> Well, well, right now our house it. is being renovated, so I eat a lot of ramen noodles. But <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, but not too many fish. No, no. I suspect time is 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 our enemy here. But I mean, I, it's been an absolute delight speaking to you, uh, Lisa, and, 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 and I'm in awe of what you've done, and you've you've shown the world that uh, that it could get better. Uh, so few people have. Thank you. I, I'm so honored to be get, receiving this award for, from such a, an amazing uh, foundation. I mean, it, you have really turned that, uh, made a, a, a huge difference in so many ways. And to be honored by you is, is especially moving and important to me. So thank you very much. Well, bless you. It's it's all part of a coalition. I, I have to add, you know, we 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 have done everything in in league with other people, as you have. But uh, thank you so much for saying so, and thank you for coming on. Awesome. The Blue Marine Foundation podcast. 
For more episodes and information, go to bluemarinefoundation.com.